0: From the outside, she was a celebrated musician, from Carnegie Hall to the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, New York, from Andre Watts to Elliot Carter. Hours upon hours of musical practice, Marsha Butler's life was filled with, and perhaps saved by, her love, her passion, her music. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk, and welcoming Marcia Butler, author of The Skin Above My Knee. Marcia, welcome.
1: Thank you, Pamela. It's great to be here.
0: Today, you are an acclaimed author, an award-winning interior designer. In years past, an internationally celebrated oboist. Your life seems to have been filled with creativity.
1: It really has, and it's odd to say, but it's just flowed that way. Um, it seems that I went from one uh, creative career to the next, and uh, a lot of hard work along the way, of course, in determination and discipline. However, I have to say that the creative energy always felt the same to me. So whether I was playing the oboe or designing a space for someone or writing words on the page, I really felt like it was coming from an interior place that was telling the same story to a certain extent.
0: And, you know, that really speaks to the need and the value of paying attention to what's on the inside.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, any creative artist, whether they're a writer, an actor, musician, dancer, uh, fine artist on, on, on the canvas, all of those people, and I include myself in it, are trying to express in a way um, what is essential inside of themselves, what they want to communicate, and which comes out in another way, a sort of a, an ephemeral way, which can be discerned by the listener or the reader or the viewer um, as something really essential, a creative product. That doesn't exist anywhere else.
0: You know, a, a, as you you heard me um, introduce you to our listeners today, a musician, uh, an author, a designer. It at first blush, it kind of sounds like you led a charmed life. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> yes, it does, and. um you know, I get that reaction a lot from people because I have gone through, I mean, I was a musician for 28 years. I was an interior designer for 15 years. Those two professions overlapped uh, by eight years. And now I'm a writer who's published a book, and I have another one forthcoming. Um, and the outward affect is one, is, is I suppose people look at me as a person who is, determined, disciplined, focused, hardworking, um, always involved, you know, to to the utmost in her art. However, everyone has a huge, wide bandwidth of experience in their lives. And um, once you crack that surface, I can say this categorically for every single person on earth, there is a wealth of, of sometimes tragedy underneath, and that was certainly the case in my life. Um, and as I describe in my book, um, I really used mem- uh, music as a saving, uh, a saving uh, device, really, in order to get me, get me out of a, an abusive family. I saw it as the way out and was able to use it that way.
0: You know what's so interesting? I mean, we all know that many myths abound. And so often when people hear about creative people, musicians, writers, I mean, it just seems like they're just so lucky that everything has gone their way and life is literally a bowl of cherries on top of cherries with maybe a little cherry on top. Your life, again, was not that at all. Let's start with your family life. Tell us about your your mother and your father. Your mother was certainly quite interesting.
1: Right. My mother, I mean, my memoir in many ways is um, principally about trying to connect with my mother, who was a profoundly distancing individual. I can say throughout my whole life, I really, that's what I wanted, was my mother, acceptance of my mother acceptance by my mother, um, acknowledgement for who I was as a person and as an artist. And um, I did not get that uh, throughout my life. So I grew up in western Massachusetts, um, a middle-class family, sort of lower middle-class family, I'd say. My father worked for General Electric during that time um, throughout his whole life, actually, but we were in Pittsfield. Uh, There was a big G.E. Uh, facility there that he worked at. And um, I, I discovered music when I was four years old, and my mother used to vacuum the living room carpet on Sunday mornings, and she would play a particular record every Sunday. This was the opera by Richard Wagner called Tristan and Isolde. And she used to play the last aria of that opera, which is called the Liebestod. That is translated from the German as Love Death. So it was a very heady opera, needless to say. Um, and I didn't, as a four-year-old, I certainly didn't understand what they were singing about because it was in German. Um, but I did, I, I every Sunday I would go and lie on the carpet and my mother would vacuum around me. And She And what I understood from that music, which transported me, it's absolutely gorgeous music, and I'm still riveted to it to this day. It's Wagner, and that opera particularly is um, one of my favorite pieces of music um, and, and remains so. But at any rate, I would lie there, and she would vacuum around me, and I would listen to this music and wallow in what... I see in retrospect is just a profound expression of love. This music is all about love. Tristan and Isolde's is love, and they're both dying at the end, or he's dead and she's about to actually kill herself to go into the afterlife with him. And I was, didn't really understand all this, of course, but I understood the music was about love and really what I was trying to do every Sunday morning while my mother was distracted and vacuuming the carpet around me, was to connect with her as well. However, I was unable to do that um, with her. That said, this music stayed inside me, and I craved it. I connected to the sound of the music. I connected to the singer who was singing that aria, who was uh, the Norwegian singer, opera singer Kirsten Flagstad, And somehow this became a, a... Sort of a tattooed template for me of something beautiful, something that expressed love, and this was not this is what I was not getting in my family, which kind of was chaos throughout my life. My father was a particularly demanding person; he was not a nice man, um, so my mother, on the one hand, was very distancing and uninvolved with the family. Um, And my father was controlling of the family. And I had a sister who, as we grew older, uh, became very rebellious, and he would beat her, and he had his own way of controlling me. So I began to play an instrument, the flute, and then I, this is, you know, obviously the short version, I began to play the oboe in seventh grade. And I really took to it. I was considered extremely talented and i was given oboe lessons and at that time i understood that my father had been playing a power play on me um throughout my young life before i even understood what it was which was to sit on his lap and as i sat on his lap from a very young age he his penis would be erect so i didn't know what was happening at the beginning but then i came to understand what was happening and I realized that if and the bargain was that I would do this and he would take me to my oboe lessons so as we all know this kind of sexual abuse even though it was very subtle it went on throughout my whole life my whole childhood and um I made my pact with him because he understood how important the oboe was and I understood that this was the way I was going to get to my lessons and learn how to play the oboe and get out of the house. As we know, um, sexual abuse in the family is not about sex, really. It's about power. It's about something else. It's about domination. And um, this was my experience growing up. It was a a household of chaos. Um, It was a household of fear. It was a household um, where a young girl had dreams, and this was the only way to get them. So So that's kind of the compact version.
0: It was also a household of secrets.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, because I was living this life at home and I was unable to tell anyone what was going on. And when a young girl is objectified in her body that way, I mean, from such a young age, and this started probably when I was five or six years old, I suppose. And I think I, I understood what was happening. I think when I was eight or nine or ten. I didn't understand what was going on until I understood it that day when, oh, this is what's happening. And um, but I was unable to say anything because my father had such control over everyone that it was understood. And I had so much at stake, Pamela. You know, um, I really couldn't chance it. I did try once in a, in a, in uh a grade school, or I think it was yes, it was in in grade school when my father particularly beat my my sister quite badly, and I asked a teacher what should one do if the f- parent is beating the child, and he just said, Oh, it depends on how badly the child is beaten and then I just realized this is not going to fly yeah. now this was in the nineteen sixties. In you know sort of rural Massachusetts, and we know a lot more about these kind of complex family dynamics now, but nothing was said back then you know
0: how general. how frightening there's there's silence at home, and essentially there was silence. you were silenced uh, at school
1: oh yeah i I remember that day I remember the man that I told the teacher, and I remember just this this pounding in my chest when he said, well, it depends on how badly the child is beaten uh, or words to that effect. And I just, it was as if, you know, I had been hit over the head with an anvil, you know, because then I really understood that there was no help. And for me or my sister, and it was I'll never forget that. That's one of those moments where you just, a young girl gets gets her reckoning, essentially, of what the reality is, and she has no agency at home or anywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. Your mom was so absent uh, in your life. Do you have a sense that she had any awareness of what was going on with you? She certainly had to know what was going on with your sister. Those beatings were quite loud. What about what was going on with you?
1: I believe she knew. Um, I can't. Be- I, I, it's hard for me to believe that she didn't know because I was a girl who sat on her daddy's lap and continued to sat, sit on her daddy's lap until she was 18 years old and got out of the house. And that is just weird. Now, does it become normalized in something that, you know... Th- You know, you just watch it and you just don't even think about it. Yes, to a certain extent. My mother, I I can say to this day, she has now passed and so has my father has passed. Um, But I can say to this day that I really don't understand my mother in many ways. I never got to have conversations about her in our adult life because we had – You know, the family was fractured, and then, of course, I was banished at a certain point, which I talk about, I write about in the book. And so over the last 25 years, I really had had no contact with my parents. Um, I do believe that, I know that she was a very, very, very gifted person. She was incredibly well-read. She was the valedictorian of her high school and her college she was a, a an artist. She could draw really well. She taught. She was um, a teacher of of Spanish and Latin and French in high school and junior high school, depending on where we lived. She was considered a phenomenal teacher. She was revered by the schools and her students. And She was lauded for her teaching abilities. Um, She was just an an exceptional person. She was viewed that way on the outside. This was not the person I knew on the inside um, in our house. She was, and I was bewildered and baffled by it when I was growing up, and yet she kept us at such an arm's distance that, you know, you just didn't ask those questions. You didn't... I, there was just no way into her. She was so closeted, so... But I think she was unfulfilled to a certain degree because I I, don't think she had a terribly loving relationship with my father. And I think she just... You know, those were the generations where women stayed married. Right. And, um, you know, she... She just had her lot in life and decided to live her life, her fulfilled life, outside of the family and on the inside. I mean, obviously, she did not protect her children. I'm not giving her a, a pass in any way, shape, or form. Sure. But I can't say that I understand her.
0: Well, it's interesting that her, it seems that her creativity and, and perhaps her emotional safety was outside of the home, as was yours. So that's really kind of interesting. You know, as as I was um, going through the skin above my knee, it it sort of, it it almost felt like a piece of music, and you know, in in one place, in one stanza, there was this experience and this feeling, and then in the next, there was something perhaps completely drawing, totally different, but really quite enveloping. I was struck by your um, description of, uh, I think it was Carter's music, when you said it sort of uh, reminded one of lace, and it seemed to me that that's really quite a lovely and accurate description of the skin above the knee because lace is intricate, it's got some holes in it, um, but it's intricate and it's beautiful, and it's often very fragile. And, and, and it just seems to me, as much as the fragility of Marcia uh, comes through in the skin above my knees, so do does the strength and the intentionality of your music and being a survivor and moving forward.
1: Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, those words because it's just such a compliment. Um, I did try. I mean, I didn't try, but I, the music, uh, the writing, I hope is lyrical and reflects that. And it, I guess, it would be because I'm a musician, and um, although I don't perform anymore, but lyricism is something that can be. Uh, uh, Applied to any art form, the lyricism l- lyric- lyricism on a canvas in a dancer's body, um, a- two actors acting against each other in, uh, in a play, and then of course in music. And then in terms of the metaphor of lace, it's isn't that the way you described it, Pamela so well is is that it's really the human condition where, it's um held together by threads that that are p- pulled together in such a beautiful way because each person is beautiful in their own way and yet there are holes where there are gaps of people you know people who didn't have love didn't didn't get opportunities that they should have grew up in poverty or whatever their their trials and tribulations have been but nothing is is a solid fabric in life it's always about the lace about how it's beautifully put together and yet has gaps that 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 particular soul did not get so um thank you for adding that metaphor to it it's beautiful
0: as you um, talk about the music, and as I read about your just musical life, again it, it it's so full, and yet as full as it it was and is, there was so much that, as you've said, was missing, was was empty. You are uh, engaged in multiple suicide attempts. Um, there was a pregnancy that ultimately, um, was terminated. Uh, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. I mean, seriously, you're right. Could could you make this stuff up? You, you, you just can't, which makes it that much more searing, I think. Um, and certainly brilliant in the, in the way that you've, uh, described it. Tell us a little bit about the the uh, the moment you decided to walk into traffic, hoping that you would not survive it.
1: Right. Oh, wow. Um, people who are who do that, who walk into traffic to commit suicide, are known in the police department as dart outs. Um, they dart out into traffic, so. I had released my boyfriend. This was just at the at the end of my. I had graduated from music conservatory. I was uh, beginning a freelance career. I was still working as a waitress in the restaurant. I had gotten rid of my boyfriend, and and I was. I didn't have the the conservatory anymore, sort of as my, you know, my structure. So I was feeling quite listless, aimless, and um, desperately depressed. I lived in Chelsea at the time. And I I can say that in, in remembering that day, I feel as if I was in a fugue state to a certain extent. I stood on the corner of 7th Avenue and 23rd Street in New York City for a very long time observing the traffic and getting up the courage to, to jump in front of a car because I wanted to kill myself. Um, I stood for quite a while. I looked at the speed of the cars. I determined what car would be the best. I didn't want to kill the person in the car, but I wanted to kill myself. So I was negotiating what speed would be right, how many people were in the car. I watched the cars go by. And I was about to make my jump. As I made my jump, a person, a woman, came and jumped on me from the back and pushed me, and I went onto the pavement. The car swerved around, and she saved me from jumping. Now, she must have been watching me for quite a while, and she screamed at me once we got up. And I, my, hand, my whole front of my, my body was scraped. My arms were scraped. My hands were scraped. Bloody. Uh, I think my chin was scraped. And she just screamed at me, don't you do that again. Don't you dare do that again. And we looked at each other. And I was speechless. And she just walked away. But she saved my life. She had red hair. And I will never forget that, and of course, at that time, Chelsea was not what Chelsea is now. Chelsea is the you know one of the you know hubs of New York City that is built up it's multi million dollar apartments, et cetera. Chelsea at that time was nothing it was just rough 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 there was one restaurant and that was it there was nothing going on in chelsea there were apartment buildings and i lived in one but it was not a particularly safe area at all It was not built up and i just had this encounter with this woman and she saved my life um but i was a dart out and it was over in 50 like probably 30 seconds it was over but i stood there for a good 20 minutes maybe even a half an hour looking and people were walking around me ignoring me i was in the path i was in the pe- pedestrian pathway people were looking at me and you know what are you doing here just walk don't walk you know get get on with it lady and it was that was one of the times that i tried to commit suicide and, and was unsuccessful
0: and and unfortunately that really does sound like it, at least to many people in new york what are you doing here? Get out of the way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the anonymity of New York, right? Everybody's just walking. You know, you go outside and people are walking. They're not, they're, you know, they're going somewhere. You know, it's still true today. Um, but then there's that other part of New York where if you stop someone and say, "Where do we you know, where do I find this?" Nine times out of ten, somebody will just sit there for five minutes and tell you where to go, especially with an iPhone now. But back then, someone saw me behaving in a way, and as I say, I, I was in a kind of a fugue state. I believe I was not in my right mind, obviously. But I think I, I looked like it enough for this woman to stand there and watch me. And what is she doing? What does she mean to do? You know, she maybe in her mind she was saying, "Well, surely she'll start walking. Surely she'll just go where she's going." But I didn't, and I was watching the cars, and it, it was just—it was, you know—I almost look on myself. It's almost like I'm looking onto myself, with, a, with as if I'm in a movie, in a way. I'm not in my body, but mm-hmm. I'm looking outside of myself. And I think that when people are in the in the state of wanting to kill themselves, there is a certain detachment that is necessary in order to go through with it. Because if you are at that point where you're going to do it, you're past the point of asking for help. Right. You're past the point of calling someone and saying, please, I feel suicidal. It becomes so internalized and so, and so... Um, non-communicable, right? you know, and that's why people go through with it. It's past that point.
0: Marsha, there's so much more we could talk about and are not able to today. Can you please let us know how people can learn more about you, about your book, and about what you're doing?
1: Thank you, Pamela. Well, I am on, uh, people can uh, reach me Directly on my website, which is www.marsha butler dot com. It's M A R C I A. Oh, I should say, excuse me, Marsha Butler Author dot com. So it's M A R C I A B U T L E R Author dot com. That's my website. Anyone can contact me. You can see my book there. You can. You know, uh, read a synopsis of it and see my other writings there. And also, uh, I have my YouTube's there, so people can click on the YouTube's and listen to my performances um, on the oboe and read more about me.
0: Wonderful, so Marsha. Welcome, yeah. Marsha. Thank you so much for. What you've done in creating this this really lyrical, brilliant piece of writing, and also for having such a comprehensive website. I did take a look at it, and it really is comprehensive. And folks will learn more, much more about you and what you're doing. Thank you again, Marsha Butler, for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk.
1: Thank you, Pamela. I appreciate it.
0: And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an Educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk, so send me an email Pamela, P A M E L A. At mindtalk.org, that's m y n d t a l k dot You can listen to Mind Talk online at the Mind Talk website. You can uh, download the Mind Talk app from either iTunes or Google Play. And remember, always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care.